I will read the first scripture lesson using the Common English Bible translation about the Exodus story to escape the slavery of Pharaoh. Moses and his brother Aaron were leading the Israelites who were not used to facing the frightening scarcity of food. They began to complain about their hunger as they traveled through the harsh desert wilderness. They were used to being satisfied with their pots cooking meat and having their fill of bread. They were about to be amazed by the power of God's creation. That we may be illuminated by today's scripture, please pray with me. Creator God of all people and of all things, startle us with your truth and open our minds to your spirit that we may be one with Christ our Lord and serve as faithful disciples through Jesus Christ. Amen. In the evening, a flock of quail flew down and covered the camp. And in the morning, there was a layer of dew all around the camp. And when the layers of dew lifted, there on the desert surface were thin flakes, as thin as frost on the ground. And when the Israelites saw it, they said to each other, what is it? They didn't know what it was. Moses said to them, this is the bread that the Lord has given you to eat. This is what the Lord has commanded. Collect as much of it as each of you can eat. One omer, which is the Hebrew word of measurement for about two quarts. So one omer per person. You may collect for the number of people in your household. And so the Israelites did as Moses said, some collecting more, some less. But when they measured it out by the omer, the ones who had collected more had nothing left over, and the ones who had collected less had no shortage. Everyone collected just as much as they could eat. Moses said to them, don't keep any of it until morning. But they didn't listen to Moses. Some kept part of it until morning, but it became infested with worms and stank. Moses got angry with them. Every morning, they gathered it as much as each person could eat. But when the sun grew hot, it melted away. This ends the reading of today's first lesson of scripture. Our gospel lesson this morning comes from the Gospel of John, 21st chapter. Listen again for God's word. Later, Jesus himself appeared again to his disciples at the Sea of Tiberias. This is how it happened. Simon Peter, Thomas called Didymus, Nathaniel from Cana in Galilee, Zebedee's sons and two other disciples were together. Simon Peter told them, I'm going fishing. They said, we'll go with you. They set out in a boat, but throughout the night they caught nothing. Early in the morning, Jesus stood on the shore, but the disciples didn't realize it was Jesus. 
Jesus called to them, Children, have you caught anything to eat? They answered him, No. He said, Cast your net on the right side of the boat, and you will find some. So they did. And there were so many fish that they couldn't haul in the net. Then the disciple whom Jesus loved said to Peter, It's the Lord. When Simon Peter heard it, heard it was the Lord, he wrapped his coat around himself, for he was naked, and he jumped into the water. The other disciples followed in the boat, dragging the net full of fish, for they weren't far from shore, only about 100 yards. When they landed, they saw a fire there with fish on it and some bread. Jesus said to them, Bring some of the fish you've just caught. Simon Peter got up and pulled the net to shore. It was full of large fish, 153 of them. Yet the net hadn't torn even with so many fish. Jesus said to them, Come and have breakfast. None of the disciples could bring themselves to ask him, Who are you? They knew it was the Lord. Jesus came, took the bread, and gave it to them. He did the same with the fish. This was now the third time Jesus appeared to his disciples after he was raised from the dead. When they finished eating, Jesus asked Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Simon replied, Yes, Lord, you know I love you. Jesus said to him, Feed my lambs. Jesus asked a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Simon replied, Yes, Lord, you know I love you. Jesus said to him, Take care of my sheep. He asked a third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was sad that Jesus asked him a third time, Do you love me? He replied, Lord, you know everything. You know I love you. Jesus said to him, Feed my sheep. I assure you that when you were younger, you tied your own belt and walked around wherever you wanted. When you grow old, you will stretch out your hands and another will tie your belt and lead you where you don't want to go. He said this to show the kind of death by which Peter would glorify God. After saying this, Jesus said to Peter, Follow me. This is the word of the Lord. When I was about seven years old, my dad and I were invited on a fishing trip with a neighbor and his son to their cabin in the woods of Wisconsin. It was to be a classic father and son fishing trip. There was only one slight problem. My dad isn't exactly an outdoorsman. And I don't just mean he doesn't know his way around a fishing pole. I mean that he is utterly disgusted by everything about fishing. <laughs> and at the top of that list of disgust is the idea of touching a slimy fish with his bare hands. I, on the other hand, was oozing with anticipation. The moment our car pulled into the gravel driveway of that cabin, I begged my dad to let me run down to the water and throw my line into the shallow water around the dock. He reminded me, Ryan, we don't even have any bait yet. I don't care, I said. I just want to go practice. 
So while he unloaded the car, I hurtled down the hill to the end of the dock and threw my line in the water with that bare hook. And I swear to you, it couldn't have been more than 10 seconds before I had a fish on that line. <laughs> I started squealing with joy and my dad ran briskly down the hill, joined me at the end of the dock and found that his worst fear had come true. <laughs> he was going to have to take that fish off the hook. And as you might guess, that first overly eager fish was just a harbinger of things to come that weekend. In two days' time, I caught 87 fish. <laughs> and he had to take every last one of them off the hook. Though I didn't realize it at the time, that trip taught me a lesson about abundance. When you throw your fishing line in the water and time and time again, within minutes or even seconds, a fish is on the other end, you begin to expect that there are no limits, only plenty. Our gospel story from John this morning ends in much the same way as my own fishing story, but our experiences of how we got there were quite different. Let's start with the basics of this gospel story before us. In John's gospel, Jesus makes three resurrection appearances, this being the final one. This time, seven of the disciples are gathered together, and perhaps because they're still not sure exactly what they're supposed to be doing now, they went back to something that was familiar to them, fishing. But it had been a disappointing night. In stark contrast to my own fishing expedition, cast after cast, the disciples came up empty-handed. Then an unknown figure appears on the shoreline and tells them to cast their net one more time. And they come up with a catch that makes my 87 fish look paltry. To understand the meaning of the disciples' huge catch, we need to put it in the context of Jesus' death and resurrection, which they had experienced just a couple weeks earlier. And when we look at the story through that lens, for me, this is the message. When you've lost hope, when your vision for your life and the world seems out of reach, and when you find yourself doubting that things can ever get better, the abundant love of God revealed in the resurrected Christ reminds us that what seems impossible is truly possible with God. I want to spend time this morning reflecting on what this message of God's abundance means for us today. But in order to understand that, I think we need to consider how this story might be interpreted a generation or two from now. This week, I reviewed a recent study conducted by an international team of ecologists. The study poured over more than five decades of UN data on commercial fishing. They conducted dozens of controlled experiments and they studied 48 marine protected areas around the globe. And the scientists came to a bold and frightening conclusion. They said that by the middle of this century, Fishermen around the world will cast their nets into the water again and again and come up empty-handed. 
More specifically, they concluded that every species of wild-caught seafood, from sardines to tuna, will collapse by the year 2050. Stephen Palumbi, a professor of biological sciences at Stanford University and one of the co-authors of this study, put it like this. Unless we fundamentally change the way we manage all the ocean species together as working ecosystems, this century will be the last century of wild seafood. As you can imagine, the collapse of all sea life is a many-layered problem with consequences that go far beyond acquiring a taste for farm-raised fish. And some parts of the world are already beginning to feel the consequences of this problem more acutely than others. Take Senegal as an example, a sub-Saharan country along the western coastline of Africa. Most coastal villages in Senegal are fishing villages, and they supply the vast majority of the protein for the country's 16 million people. But in the last five years, most Senegalese fishermen have left the trade that has been passed down in their families from generation to generation. Let's watch a short video to better understand why. Senegal and Mauritania has collapsed. Overfishing, climate change, and local competition all played their part in the problem. Now though, a new challenge is emerging in the area, access to affordable food. Much of northern Senegal lies in the Sahel, a transitional desert zone stretching from the Sahara in the north to the Sudanian savanna in the south. The Sahel's harsh climate makes it very difficult to raise cattle and chicken. So fish, caught on the coast, then shipped hundreds of miles, are a key source of protein for inland communities. Fresh fish, caught by fleets of traditional wooden fishing boats, called pirogues, are shipped to markets inland, where people buy them to ensure balanced diets. Each pirogue is just one link in a vast business chain that also includes freezer trucks, local markets, brokers, and locally owned buyers. Pirogue fishing has worked so well for so long that fish account for 75% of the protein in the Senegalese diet, even in places hundreds of miles from the shore. At the same time, industrial-scale foreign fishing fleets overfished West Africa's waters to feed a booming global demand for animal protein. As the fish grow scarce, the pirogue supply line is fraying. In Saint-Louis, a key fishing port on the border between Senegal and Mauritania, the pirogue fleet's catch is down more than 80% in just five years. Since 2014, three out of four fishermen in Saint-Louis say they have left the business that sustained their fathers and their grandfathers before them. Sales of local fish are down 70%. But the collapse of the oceans off Senegal isn't just the story of the end of a way of life. It's the collapse of a business that brings affordable food to millions of people. Inland communities are big enough to need a vast supply chain to bring fish to local markets. But they aren't quite big enough, or perhaps rich enough, to catch the global fishing industry's attention. 
For years, getting food to the markets was the pirogues' job. But in the future, if the pirogues disappear, even before the fish all have, the Senegalese will have to figure out how to get affordable, healthy food from somewhere else. So you can imagine that a Senegalese fisherman might read this story from John's Gospel quite differently than we do. We can attempt to empathize with the disciples' disappointment in their empty nets, but we can hardly conceive of it as anything more than a metaphor for our lives. A fisherman in Senegal, on the other hand, who has known firsthand the disappointment of an empty net, who has lost hope in his profession, his family, his country's future, he can understand the pain of the disciples in a very real way. And yet the ultimate message of this story, the ultimate message of the gospel really is God's abundance. But how can I possibly stand up here and preach a gospel of abundance when I just told you a story of scarcity? And when, in fact, most of the stories we hear today about our planet and its resources are stories of scarcity. This story about Jesus' final resurrection appearance leaves us with a challenging question today. How do we live in the tension between God's abundance and the world's scarcity? I want to introduce to you a concept I'll call limited abundance. Limited abundance is a somewhat paradoxical idea that we must have faith in God's unlimited abundance while at the same time recognizing that there are real limits in this good creation that belong to God. I'm going to offer us three ways that we can practice limited abundance in our everyday lives, each of them coming from our story itself. The first practice Cast your net again. When from the shore Jesus shouted to his disciples, Cast your net on the right side of the boat, I strongly doubt that the disciples' initial reaction was, Oh my gosh, why didn't we think of that? <laughs> More likely they had been casting their net all over the lake that night, but they couldn't catch any fish. And so this stranger's instruction to just do again what had seemed like it wasn't working must have felt frustrating, fruitless, futile. But they did it anyway. And this simple act of obedience, this act of discipleship in the face of hopelessness, is the first practice of limited abundance. And it's a lesson that we should apply to our role as God's caretakers for creation. Faced with horrifying predictions about the irreversible consequences of overfishing, of thousand-year droughts and floods, melting polar ice caps, and all kinds of consequences of climate change, it's easy to get discouraged as the disciples did on that fishing boat to throw up our hands and say there's nothing we can do about it. But instead of feeling despair, limited abundance means expecting God's abundance in the face of impossibility, 
casting our nets again, even when it may seem pointless. So what are some small but faithful actions that we can integrate into our lives to care for creation? The second practice of limited abundance, feed the lambs. Jesus asks Peter, do you love me? And when Peter answers him in the affirmative, Jesus responds, feed my lambs. It's all too easy for us to read Jesus' response metaphorically and leave it at that. But let's remember that Jesus literally fed people, especially the lambs, the weakest and most vulnerable in creation. So the second practice of limited abundance means creating abundance for others by sharing from our own abundance. And when we don't, reminding ourselves that our own personal abundance may contribute to someone else's scarcity. Another way to think of Jesus' instruction to Peter is that it's a reestablishment of God's original charge to the first human being in the garden of creation, to farm it and to care for it. So which of Jesus' lambs will you help feed? And what will you do to care for this creation so that there will be abundance now and for future generations? The final practice of limited abundance Stretch out your hands. Jesus says to Peter, when you were younger, you tied your own belt and walked around wherever you wanted. When you grow old, you will stretch out your hands and another will tie your belt and lead you where you don't want to go. That phrase, stretch out your hands, was an allegory often used in the early church to symbolize crucifixion. So Jesus very plainly tells Peter that there will be great personal cost in his discipleship. And then he says to Peter, follow me. Peter was eventually crucified, as were most of the disciples as far as we know. From these first followers, we learn that limited abundance means that our discipleship goes beyond what we readily offer. Beyond church on Sundays and daily prayer and a tithe. Following Jesus will demand that we give far more than we may be comfortable with so that others may have more abundant life. So what can each of us give or give up so that creation itself may have more abundant life? So if you're ready to cast your nets again, then stand up. Stand up. Stand ready to take small but faithful actions to obey Jesus and care for creation. And if you're ready to feed Jesus' lambs, then put your hands out. Hold out your open hands to your neighbors in need and share from your own abundance so that this generation and generations to come and creation itself may have life and have it more abundantly. And if you're ready to follow Jesus, then stretch your hands out wherever he may lead you.
and whatever it may cost and say, yes, Lord. Amen. If you would stay standing, we are going to do our affirmation of faith in just a few moments. But before we do that, I just show you this commitment card that you'll find over in Social Hall during the Eco Fair on the Earth Care table. That's a reminder of these three practices of limited abundance and a chance for you to take it home and reflect on how God might be calling you to integrate some of these practices of limited abundance in your own life.